Yeah. Um, how many of you guys did your homework this week and watched the Little America's Funniest Home Videos to watch Bad Decisions? Good, I'm proud of you. Got a couple. That's good. We figured some of you wouldn't, so we do homework in class today. Um, you know, it is, it is amazing that, one, people make those bad decisions, and, two, they get them on tape. Uh, or not tape anymore, I guess, so much. But uh, get, them, get them recorded, and it just, just kind of blows my mind. People really do make bad choices, and, uh, and so do we. And that's what today is all about. You know, the last couple of weeks we've talked about um, joy in death and joy in suffering and, and joy in loneliness. Today it's a little bit more positive, I guess. Uh, be in joy and temptation. And you're like, well, why in the world would you even say there's any joy and temptation at all? And the way I see it is if, if uh, you're experiencing opposition head on, it's because you're going in the right direction. If you're not experiencing the opposition, you might be going with the opposition. So uh, think about that for a second. Do me a favor, open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and if you uh, have been following along with us, you'll notice we're actually skipping verses 1 through 11 here. They talk about humility, and the reason why we're doing that is because we're going to talk about the humility of Christ come Christmas time on December 19th. Um, also, one thing I want to make an announcement of, I'm not sure if you guys saw him scrolling at the beginning or not, but um, we're going to do a baby dedication, our first Paragon baby dedication on uh, the 12th, and we would love for each person that, uh, that has had a baby recently uh, to be a part of that and dress them up all cute stuff. I know we're pretty casual, but, you know, when babies come in all dressed up, everybody goes, oh, and that kind of So it's going to be a fun time. So make sure you're here for the 12th. Joy and temptation. Before we get started, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are and what you do for us and do in us and do through us and even do in spite of us. Lord, as we get into your word this morning, I pray you open our eyes, not to other people's faults, Lord, but to our own. Sometimes we'll hear a message that, Lord, seems to apply to everybody else, and we forget that it needs to apply to us. Lord, speak to us this morning. We pray it in your name. Amen. Have you ever been affected by a bad choice? My son and I, Camden, we have talks like this all the time. Choices lead to consequences. And sometimes it's good choices lead to good consequences. That's a possibility. But most of the time our discussion is the fact that bad choices lead to bad consequences. It's the, well, I don't want to get spanked. Well, then you shouldn't have done what you did. You know, it's, you've had that discussion, I'm sure, or maybe it's just a timeout for you or whatever it is. It's, I don't want that. Well, if you hadn't have made the choice, you wouldn't have to suffer the consequence. And, um, we suffer consequences of our own choices, and sometimes we suffer the consequences of other people's choices. And it's not fun either way. And as we talk this morning, I want you to know something. I'm going to say something that I probably won't say very often, and that is, is today's message is about you. Okay? I don't say that very often. Normally, I'm like, you know, it's not about you. Today, it is about you. And today, it's about me as well. And as we really look at it, as we really get into this, we'll start hearing things about, well, I remember when that one person did that to me and how it affected me. We start thinking about somebody else and how we wish that they were here so they could hear this. And we're already thinking about how can I download this and send this to them so they can, they can have it, so they can hear it, and, and they can learn a lesson from it. It's about us today. It's about you. It's about me. It's about learning about our temptations. It's about learning from our temptations and how to deal with them. Paul, as he's writing to the Philippian church, he makes something very clear. And if you're taking notes today, this is the first thing. We live in a twisted world. We live in a twisted 
world. He tells the Philippian church that in chapter 2, verse 15. We're going to read that here in just a minute. But why is it so twisted? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about why people do what they do? I'm not sure about you, but um, there's been a news story about a family in Ohio. Uh, uh, the, the girl was found alive, bound and gagged in some guy's basement, and that same guy showed him where he had stabbed uh, her brother, her mother, and her mother's friend and shoved their body into a tree trunk. And all I could think of is, what kind of sick people? What, how twisted do you have to be to do something like that? There's another one just yesterday, saw on Fox News, came up, a family... Uh, a single mom, two twin six-year-old daughters, and a three-year-old son found stabbed to death in their house. Nobody can figure out why, how, she didn't have any enemies. We live in a twisted world. You ever sat and watched a TV show like CSI or Criminal Minds or things like that, and you're like, how do you even write that kind of stuff? It's because we live in a twisted world, and people have twisted thoughts. And unfortunately, we have twisted thoughts. Now, some of our twisted thoughts aren't going to be newsworthy, but it just has to be slightly off kilter from the truth. just has to be slightly deceptive and throw us off of what God really wants us to be. We justify doing what we're doing wrong because we're just slightly twisted. If you want an example, I'm not sure how many of you guys uh, drove here today. I would assume everybody did. I don't think anybody was walking. But in your process of driving here, did anybody go above the speed limit? Yeah, I was going down a hill. I mean, it started picking up speed. I didn't want to ride the brakes. You know how that is. You know, those kind of, we can justify why, I mean, we have police officers in here. Tell me all the excuses that you've heard about why somebody's going just a little bit too fast. We can justify because we just have a little bit of twist. We can tweak that gray area just a little bit, and hopefully it works out in our favor. Why is it, though? Why do we live in such a twisted world? And the reason is, is there's an invisible world that affects our visible world. There's an invisible world that affects our visible world. Back in the 1800s, Louis Pasteur found out there was germs that caused sickness. Before he really did a lot of research on it, people just thought they spontaneously got sick. Didn't realize there was an invisible world affecting their visible world. Now we have hand sanitizers, now we have soaps, now we have all sorts of things that fight off that bacteria and germs so we don't get sick quite as easy. The same thing is true now. People don't understand there is a visible or an invisible world affecting our visible world. This world is twisted because of Satan and his demons. Now Satan doesn't have the same power that God has. He doesn't have the ability to be everywhere He doesn't have the ability to see everything, but he does have the ability to control this world. This earthly world is really under the prince of darkness control, and he has twisted it. And he wants to see us be twisted as well. He wants to see us not do things for God. He wants to challenge us to be ineffective. And that's what it's really all about in what we do and how we do it. When we say, oh, I can't believe I did that. Well, it's because we are tempted, and that twisting, that justification, those things come into our minds, those things affect our thoughts, those things affect everything that we do. Sometimes Satan's effect is obvious. Sometimes, not so much. Sometimes it's a blatant lie. Sometimes it's just a tweak of the gray area. 
And depending on well, what we do and how we do it and how we fall into that is, is how we are affected. And Paul today is talking about that very thing. You see, we will lie to ourselves and say, well, it's not that bad. We'll say, well, everybody else is doing it. It's not going to hurt anybody anyway. And my favorite one is, is, well, what exactly is the truth anyway? You know, we, we've let this cultural definition of truth, which in some circles is there is no definition of truth. Truth is what you make it. And the biblical definition of truth, which is there is a black and there is a white, gray, and there's no gray area in between for us to be able to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We like to, as Christians, though, blend it and create a gray area. And in that, that's where we cause our problems. See, Satan doesn't want to just ruin you. That wouldn't do him any good. He just wants to make you ineffective. And even more so, he wants to make you effective for him. Because when you ruin your testimony, or when you do something that other people that have have seen you forever and ever and ever, and they say, well, that's a Christian, and then you just drop the ball, well, that's a benefit for him. Because everybody just doubts who God is. Well, why should I go to church if that person that goes to church every Sunday and misses football at the beginning of the kickoff and does those things, man, and they still live just like I do. Why should I even bother going? And those are things that are really what Satan wants to do. His main weapon against us is confusion or deception. Confusion or deception. It's so easy for us to get confused and deceived when it comes to temptation. It's so easy for us to just get into that little bit of twist. The passage we're going to read today doesn't exactly scream temptation. It's not like we're reading Genesis and seeing that somebody's going to eat an apple or we're following Jesus out in the wilderness and he's being tempted by the devil in three very specific ways. But I do want you to read this with me. If you do me a favor, open up your Bibles to chapter 2 of Philippians, if you haven't already. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to start in verse 12 and we're going to go uh, to verse 18 for the first part of this this morning, what we're going to read. It says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Some of your translations will say complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky, and as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm not sure if you saw it. Did you see it in there? Did you see the little thing about temptation? I was laying in bed last night and I was thinking about it. I'd already kind of closed up shop and, and just was laying there. And I started thinking about when he says, do not complain or argue. Doesn't it seem like that every temptation that we have comes from complaining or arguing? We get tempted because we argue with ourselves on whether we're good enough. We complain to ourselves that we don't have what so-and-so has. It all kind of starts right there. And he says, do not complain or argue. Do not complain or argue. Because it's not about 
this blatant temptation of here's an apple, uh, you're going to have all the knowledge in the world that you want, or Jesus, you haven't eaten, let's make some bread, you can do it here out of the rocks, I'm going to tempt you in this way, I'm going to give you everything of this world because Satan was the prince of this world. Those kind of things, it's not quite like that. Instead, it's about deception. It's about confusion because if we give in to that deception, if we give in to that confusion, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt our testimony. And there's a pretty good chance it's going to hurt others. And I bet right now you can each think of something that you have given into, whether small or big, that has hurt you, that has hurt your testimony, and that has or will soon hurt others. I can almost guarantee that we can think about it. What is it about this gray area that we have such a hard time seeing at the time, but afterwards we realize what we've done wrong? Even when people are telling us, hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. And we kind of blow them off. And we're challenged by somebody, yet we continue to do it. Whatever it might be, there's a gray area there. The cool thing is, is Paul sees it bright and clear, and he makes it very clear to many of the letters of the, the churches that he's writing to. On, hey, you've got to be careful how you're living. You've got to be careful how you're living. You see, he talks about many of us, if you've been in church for a while, you've had an opportunity to go through the armor of God. And he goes through the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and he talks about put on the armor of God to do what? Does anybody remember why you need to put on the armor, armor of God? To fight against the devil's what? Schemes. Schemes. It's not to fight against the devil hand-in-hand combat. It's to fight against the devil's schemes. It's to fight against the devil's confusion. His deception. And that's what we need to do. He writes that to the the church at Ephesus. Uh, He writes to the Galatian church. He challenges them not to give up the good fight. He says, hey, keep doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. In the church in Corinthians, he knows that the, the church at Corinth is surrounded by a pagan culture, which is much like us today. Surrounded by a pagan culture. And he says, just keep being strong. And that's what his letter was all about to them. The church at Ephesus as well, he says, hey, live as children of the light. We already read that here in verse 15. Live as children of the light. The church at Colossians, he says, hey, guess what, guys? Don't miss who Christ is because you're going to be deceived to follow these false ideas of who Christ is. But instead, I want you to follow the truth. Don't be deceived by the schemes. Church of Thessalonica says, hey, guess what? Don't live idle lives. Don't just be participators, be spectators. Each of these things, as they come along, each of these things as they pop up, you see the same theme in each and every one of them. And that is, the devil is trying to confuse you and make you not understand the truth. We need to understand the truth. Even last week, last week in Philippians 1.27, he said, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever, whether I come and see you only or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. He's challenging them. In his letters to Timothy, in his letters to Titus, he's also challenging them. These are young pastors saying, follow my lead as I followed Christ. Follow. That's what he's challenging them to do. Why? Because it's so easy so easy to get confused. So easy to get deceived. When we start talking to ourselves, how many of you guys talk to yourselves? I talk to myself all the time. You know what I found that happens when I talk to myself? 
I can sell myself on anything. I'm the best salesman for myself in this room. As you are the best salesman for yourself in this room, we can sell ourselves on anything. Any idea that we want, we can talk ourselves in or out of it. And if you're talking to yourselves, we can talk ourselves into believing something that probably isn't true or that is true. And we can talk ourselves into believing that the same way. Why would Paul spend so much time writing to all these churches to tell them about how to live? Because it's that important. It is that important. He wants people, look at verse 15 again, where it says in chapter 2, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. He knows what our calling is, and that is to shine the light in the darkness of this world. Guess who else knows what our calling is? You do. You already know that. If you've been to church, you understand that we're supposed to live as children of the light. You know else who knows? Satan does. And he wants to make you, instead of being stars, light on a dark night, he wants to make you be the clouds that block the stars. He wants to make you ineffective or even cause others to be ineffective. Confusion, deception, and doubt. The devil's scheme is to create that confusion. And how does he do it? It really starts in verse 14 when Paul says, don't argue and don't complain. Don't argue and don't complain. Because when we argue and when we complain, confusion happens. Confusion happens. Who's right? How am I right? All these kind of things like this. We lie to ourselves. We lie to others. And that keeps us from doing what verse 12 told us to do, which is work out our salvation. And some people will miss interpret that but what he's saying is is god is doing a great work in you god is making some major changes in your life let other people see it don't hide it let other people see it in what you do is what you do based on and your salvation or is your salvation based on what you do no it's not but it sure does help other people see that god is doing a work in you if you're working it out and you're letting him work in your lives culture will tell you the exact opposite though They'll tell you, you know, if you are working yourself out in God's eyes, that means you're kind of a slave to God. And don't you want to be free? I mean, isn't our whole idea of life to be free? From the very time that we're young, we want more freedom and more freedom and more freedom. And we think if, if we give ourselves to God in that way, it's automatically going to make us a slave to Him. And we're not going to have that freedom. And that's what the world tells us. Well, you can't be a slave to God, or you can't do that stuff, because then you're, you're locked into these rules and even sometimes churches come across that way. They were locked into rules. Culture says that, that if, you can, if, you, uh, if you can, complain. Complain that you're not getting what you deserve. Complain that you're not getting your equal due. Argue with people for your point. And argue it no matter what the cost. And then even more so, fight to win. It all costs, whether you're wrong or right. Anybody ever been in an argument where you know you're wrong, but you just can't let your pride aside? I have. I can argue about stuff all the time. You just give me a shot. We'll, we'll give it a shot. Um, the, the whole thing is, is we'll do that, and at very, very, very last resort, what do we do? We blame somebody else, right? Even blame God. 
Well, it's God's fault. I mean, he's not here to defend himself. It's God's fault. And, and that's what we do. We like to complain. It's a natural thing. We're naturally negative. We're conditioned by culture. I mean, what makes the headlines on the news? The negative things. All the negative things make the headlines in the news. How, I, I got to tell you, I was so glad when the elections were over. Because there was not one political commercial that I saw that talked about how great somebody was. It only talked about how bad the other person was. It was, hey, choose the lesser of two evils. I think they should pass a law and say, hey, you can only talk about yourself. Then we'll see what happens. Let's see how, many, how much money gets spent on commercials. It, you know, it would be a great thing to see, but we like to complain. If you look at the Bible, some of God's greatest men were huge complainers. And really, there's four types of complainers, and if you're taking notes, here they are. The, uh, the whiner. Number one, the whiner. David, a man after God's own heart. He could be falling into this category. Psalm 73, 13 quotes David complaining that the wicked get stuff and he doesn't. As a matter of fact, this is what he says. He says, have I been wasting my time? Why take all the trouble to be pure? All I get out of this is trouble and woe. Doesn't that sound like something we'd say? So much more work just to be good. (laughs) Why not just be bad? It's not fair. I don't deserve this God. But what about everybody else? Jesus talks about life not being fair in Matthew chapter 20. I'm not sure if you remember the story. He's telling a parable about workers. Some workers get up in the morning, and they have to work all day long, and some other workers come later in the evening, and they only work for a short time, but everybody gets paid the same. And all these people start complaining. He says, hey, guess what? Life's not fair. Life here on earth isn't fair. This is the way it is. Heaven's going to be fair. Hell's going to be fair. But here on earth, not so much. Here on earth, not so much. The second person is, after the whiner of King David, is the martyr. The martyr, Moses. Moses, God's choice to lead his people from slavery, is quoted in the book of Numbers saying this. He asked the Lord, why have you brought me this trouble? What have I done? Sorry. What have I done to displease you that put the burden of all these people on me? Have you ever been around this person, or maybe you catch yourself doing it, that nobody appreciates me? Nobody, nobody appreciates me. You have to go out. If you, these people, they know how to throw a pity party. They really do. And, and when we're doing that, if they're sick or if they're under pressure, you're going to know about it. How do you react when you don't get your way? Do you mount a campaign basically of just complaining to let everybody know about it? The thing is, I said, this message is about you. The first thing we can think of is somebody else when I say that. When you giggled and laughed, you thought of somebody else that you've spent time with. But a lot of times, like I said, the the hardest person to see is the person in the mirror and how they act. The third one is the cynic, Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, we went through the book of uh, went through a real quick book of Ecclesiastes there in um, at the end of the one month to live series, and we all know what he said: meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's not going to get any better than this. Too bad. What's the use? You know, if you have kids, you've probably said that after you pick up their ki- after their toys. 
because the next thing you know, they're all out again. You're like, what's the use? You know, what's the, why even bother? We have that mentality, the cynic. And then there's the perfectionist. The perfectionist, nothing is ever right for this person. It's never good enough. It's never good enough. Proverbs 21, 19, and 27, 15 talk about a nagging wife or a complaining wife, but I really truly believe that goes for men as well. It really goes for that. We argue about the dumbest little things, about how it's not the way we want it. There's, there's things like that that happen all the time, and the, the thing is, is we correct people. I'll watch it with people. I'll watch it between spouses. I watch it between a, a, a child and, and parent. And I'm not saying I don't do it. Trust me, I'm just saying I, I see it. But we, we always have to be that little, oh, I've got to throw in, well, it's not exactly that. It's this. And I hate it when Camden does it to me. And it's probably the reason why he does it to me is because I do it to him. And he's learning from me, and he's watching me. And I think that right there, because we'll complain back and forth to our spouses and we'll argue, and our kids are sitting there going, okay, well, we went to church earlier, um, and I'm pretty sure that's not right. Yet they'll see it, they'll learn from it, and it's amazing how many teens and especially college-age students have a hypocritical view of Christianity. And a lot of it starts right at home in the way that we act in front of them. How do we conquer it? How do we not be a perfectionist or a cynic or a martyr or a whiner? The Bible says do everything without complaining or arguing. How do we not complain? Well, it's like any other habit. What's step one? Admit you have a problem. Admit you have a problem. That is step number one. Admitting or admit complaining and arguing are a problem for you. Because I think really the most part, difficult part is, is seeing it in yourself. We can see it in everybody else, but do we see it in ourselves? I was, I was laughing. I was thinking, you know, I'm not sure if you ever caught yourself saying something on video that wasn't you know, it wasn't supposed to be that way. You know, it was kind of something in the background. And you're in the background and you can hear yourself. And it didn't ever sound like that when it was coming out of your mouth, but it sure sounds like that after it's been recorded. What if somebody followed you around with a video camera for a week? And then they made you sit down the next week and sit and watch it and how you acted towards people and how you spoke to your children and how you spoke to your spouse. And would you be ashamed? There's a pretty good chance. I don't think any of us in here can probably say, no, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm better than that. I mean, we all have our incidents that, that come across, and, and the way we, we talk to people, how we represent ourselves, how we re- represent the God of the universe that we're supposed to be representing, it's a tough thing to think about. Complaining is a sin, and we're supposed to admit our sin to God and confess it to Him. Do you understand that that's the sin that kept the Israelites out of the promised land? Was their murmuring and complaining? Admitting you have a problem is step number one. Number two is accepting responsibility for your life. Accepting responsibility for our life. We love to blame others. It's always someone else's fault. Like I said before, we even blame God because he can't even really defend himself. And that's what Psalm 19, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 19.13 is all about. Is, is about blaming God. We can't complain how the ball bounces if you dropped it, okay? But that's how many times, that's what we normally do. We reap what we sow. If you want to be a friend, or if you want to have a friend, be a friend. If you want people to listen to you, listen to them. If you want 
to be first in your marriage? Put your spouse first in your marriage. Those are things that we need to focus on. Those are things that we need to do. If you want to change your life, if you want to not only come as you are, but be changed, you have to be willing to be changed. You have to be willing to be changed if you want change in your life. Third thing is, is develop an attitude of gratitude. Develop an attitude of gratitude. What a great point for Thanksgiving week. I love Thanksgiving. I do. It was so much fun having all the kids up here and having them say something and Peyton just kept on talking. He's got his dad's thing where he just, once he gets a mic, it's over. My mom and my dad and my brothers, my brother and my sister. You know, it's, uh, it's so much fun to hear what people are thankful for, but you know how many times we really think about what we're thankful for outside of Thanksgiving week? It's not very often. Until something's taken away, or until our lives are threatened, or until somebody else's lives are threatened, that's when we really are kind of thankful and it, it refreshes in our mind. We need to have that attitude of gratitude. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances. And it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says give thanks in all circumstances. And, you know, um, I'm not sure about you. If you ever watched this, I, I caught it last night, and I've seen it a couple of times. But uh, it's called Border Wars, and it's on the National Geographic Channel. And it's all about um, people trying to get into our country and how the Border Patrol is, you know, constantly on guard and doing those kind of things like that. Well, the people they caught last night, um, two of them are from Brazil. One of them was from Sri Lanka. One of them paid $80,000 to get smuggled into the United States. Who would pay $80,000 to get smuggled here? Somebody who has it a whole lot worse someplace else. We have a tendency to think we, we don't have it very good. But that's not true at all. I mean, we've talked about it before. We are in the top 5% of economic, everybody in this room. We are in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world, right here in this room. It's a crazy thing to think about. When we think about we don't have, what we don't have, how we don't have it, we need to have an attitude of gratitude and be thankful. Fourth thing is, is look for God's hand in circumstances. Look for God's hand in circumstances. Paul is telling us that problems will come. We know that. There's no doubt about it. But realize that God is in control, that God's purpose is greater than our problems, and that through our problems, just like we've talked about the last three weeks, the gospel can go forward. Through our problems, the gospel can go forward. But let me, let me just stop for a second there. If you are one who works in a, uh, a secular work environment, or you go to school at, at public school, or even a Christian school for that matter, um, you go and, and you have a rough weekend, and you go and you complain about the people at church to somebody at work. And then three days later, you're like, hey, you should come to church with me this week. How do you think that's going to go over? Yeah, we need to look at God's hand in the circumstances. And there's a lot of times we won't really think about the testimony that we're throwing out there until we start seeing how people are looking at us and saying, oh, well, maybe, you know, that church isn't as great because they're always complaining about it, but they're, they're always inviting us. I don't quite understand that. Or whatever it might be. Or complaining about how God's not doing something in their lives. Well, that makes God look bad. And that goes over and over and over again. So we have to look for God's hand in our circumstances. And the final one is practice, practice, practice speaking positively. Practice, practice, practice. Practice, practice, practice. You know one thing I hated about playing football in high school? 
practice all summer long in Phoenix, Arizona. Hated it. Two-a-days. You just wanted to just die. So hot. Practice, practice, practice. And why do you do that? Because it's supposed to make you better. Our football team was one and nine. We were terrible. Um, so that might be a bad example. Let's go to something else. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I just couldn't ever get into that, that whole practice thing. I didn't like it. But that's what it takes to get better. They say practice makes perfect. That's not true. But it does make you better. It does make you better. And if we speak positively, Ephesians 4.29 says, hey, guess what? Build each other up. Stop throwing out those words that tear everybody else down. Build each other up. And guess what? That's Paul writing again to another church, saying, guys, we can't be deceived. It's a hard thing, but it's necessary to build relationships with your family. It's necessary to build relationships with your kids. And it's necessary to build relationships with your friends. If you work on your complaining, look at the results in verse 15. So that you become blameless, that means nobody can point fingers at you, and pure, which the Greek word means to have integrity, and children of God without fault, shining like the stars. If we don't complain, we can be a light in this extremely negative world. And people are going to know that we have something different. People are going to know that. And at the end of this passage, because we're going all the way through 30, I'm sorry about that. Um, we're going all the way through 30. But at the end of this passage, the, he writes about two guys. One guy's name is Timothy and the other guy's name is Epaphroditus. And in the process of writing about these guys, he doesn't complain about them, but instead he lifts them up and he says, this is what you guys need to be like because they followed me just like I've followed Christ and look at their lives. As a matter of fact, Timothy, Timothy, who he says in verse 20 is, he says, I have no one like him. He's above everybody else. He's, he's that great of a follower. And then in Epaphroditus, he says, hold men like him in the highest honor. What do they have that makes them different? Five quick things and we'll be done. Compassion. Compassion. God is looking for people who put others before things. God is looking for people who put others before things. We need to realize that relationships are more important than stuff. I truly believe the most important thing that we can invest in is people. And maybe that's the reason why I have the job that I have. But the most important people to invest in or the most important thing we can invest in is people. Second one is consistency. Consistency. God is looking for people who put character before conformity. Character before conformity. I want to let you know this. It is okay to stand for God and against the flip-flopping world. It's okay. There's going to be people that are going to say stuff, but it's okay to be a person of character versus a person of conformity. Timothy proved himself worthy, it says in verse 22. Are we proving ourselves worthy? Third thing is cooperation. God is looking for people who cooperate before they compete. Paul worked together with all sorts of churches. I mean, we saw it. You see all the letters that he wrote, and those aren't even all the letters. Those are just the ones that made it into the Bible. Paul worked together, and sometimes he had to show them tough love. If you read some of those letters, he's not happy with some of the churches and some of the things they're doing. He had to show them tough love, but it was never a competition about how bad they were and how good he was. He was trying to help them along and bring them to a point where he thought they would be growing spiritually. The Christian life is a family. It's a brotherhood. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions brother when he's addressing these churches 133 times in all of his letters. 
It's a family. It's a team. We work together for the same goal, which is to reach people for Christ. And it's also a fight. We're in a fight with the devil. It's plain and simple. And I said the invisible world affects our visible world. We need to understand that, and we need to help each other out to work through that fight. So if you see somebody failing, help them out. Don't stand idly by and watch them drown. Help them out. Fourth thing is commitment. God is looking for people who put the cause of Christ before comfort. You realize, Epaphroditus, I don't know if you know anything about this and how he's even tied into this story. He's the one that the church at Philippi sent to help Paul while he's in prison. Now, Paul was in prison probably for two years before he ever got his trial. He was in there. He was chained to a guard. Uh, whether he was on house arrest and was able to come and go, I don't know. But the, the whole thing is, is that he was in there for two years. The church at Philippi found out about it. They put together stuff, and Epaphroditus is the one who volunteered. It was an 800-mile journey, about a 12-week walk. Okay? I mean, he walked for three months to get to Paul. In the meantime, while he was walking, he got so sick that he almost died and was in bed for three months. So just to get to Paul took him almost six months. Do you think if you were along the journey and you started to get sick that you might back off and go home? How many of us would be willing to give up three months of our lives for something that didn't sound... I don't like to walk. It shows, okay? Um, but walk for three straight months to get a letter, to say, hey, Paul, how you doing? Hope you're doing all right. Here's some stuff we put together for you. And then walk for three months home. Commitment. Commitment. 65, 70 years ago, Nikolai Lenin... He said this, he said, give me 100 committed men and I will change the world. I think he, effect, he effectively did what he was calling to do because two-thirds of the world's population are under communist rule. Give me 100 men, committed men, and I will change the world. The fifth thing is courage. God is looking for people who will put service before security. Our culture says that our earthly goal is to become financially secure and financially independent Security becomes our goal versus service. When we worry about security, what do we risk for God? When you worry about security, what do you risk for God? You know, I looked at this passage over and over again, and I skipped over a verse there in the middle. It was verse 16, and it's Paul when he said, And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ Jesus that I did not run or labor in vain. And he says, And I'll be poured out like a drink offering. He says, I'm asking you, to follow Jesus. I'm asking you to live a life worthy of being called a follower of Christ. I want to see you grow. That's the reason why he's writing these letters. He could have just planted these churches and left and been good and hopefully something would have happened, but instead he continued to invest. He continued to say, hey, guess what? I want you to change, to be more like Christ, to be examples, to shine in the dark worlds. He wanted to say, you know, I, I want to be proud that I can say I invested in you. When I'm standing for Jesus, I can say, hey, I invested in the church at Ephesus, and I in invested in the Colossian church, and I invested in, in the Galatian church, and I invested in these people, and look what it's done. He wants to be able to do that. And I know what Paul is saying here. I know what he's saying here because I want to see you guys change 
to be more like Christ. I want to see myself change to be more like Christ. I want to see every person that has walked in those doors right there to be changed to be more like Christ. We are not merely here to have a nice Christian club where we can hang out together on Sunday and and get our service project out of the way because we set up. We are here to grow, to become more like Christ. We are here to become better Christians if you want to go that way. Because none of us have reached that pinnacle. None of us have gotten there. And every one of us, every one of us needs to be challenged to go to our workplaces needs to be challenged to go to our neighborhoods, needs to be challenged, and this is me included when I say every one of us, needs to be challenged to go to our schools and share the love of God. Plain, simple, period. And I'm not going to ever stop. I'm not going to ever stop on a Sunday morning and say, hey guys, we've done it. We have reached our goal. We're there. You know, when I said we have 10,000 for Christ in 10 years, I still truly believe that. But if it happens... I'm not going to be like, all right, guys, let's close up shop. We did it. We're going to keep pushing, and we're going to keep growing, and we're going to keep discipling, and we're going to keep being discipled. We're going to be like Paul. We're going to be like Timothy. We're going to have a Timothy in our lives that we can invest in just like Paul did. We're going to have somebody in our lives that's investing us and challenging us and pushing us to be better, to be more Christ-like, to reach that point where we can say before God, God, this is what I've done. This is who I've invested in. He can say back to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to see happen. And you know what? The Bible says teachers are held in higher regard in a way that they are held more responsible for the people that they are teaching. And I take that very personally because when I stand before God, I don't want him to go like, seriously? Have you seen the people you put out? Have you seen the fruit that's going there? It's a little wilted. You know, I don't want that to happen. And, you know, I took it personally when I would see a a youth. I've been in youth ministry since 1997. And when I'd see a youth, they would come through the youth ministry and grow and be involved in ministry now. I have some youth that are currently youth pastors, and it's just awesome to see that. It's awesome to be that. But I also have youth that are now gay and completely walked away from God, and that hurts me. Like, that's something that is partly my fault for the way that was invested. And I know that it's not completely my fault, but how much am I responsible? And I take full responsibility that I didn't challenge everybody to be able to just continue to walk and get involved in a connection group where there's a small group that can push you. Because I can't, unfortunately, meet with everybody every week. I wouldn't get anything done. But if you get involved in a connection group, if you get involved, if you build relationships and friendships in here and these kind of things, that is what this is about. And I want to challenge you to do it. And I want to challenge you to not complain and to not argue and to not put a a negative face on what a Christian is out there in a world that's already negative. Be that light. Shine that light. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. You are a God that we do not understand fully. Because if you were a God that we could understand fully, you wouldn't be God. You are a God that we can love in our low times and in our high times. And you're a God that that loves us the same way. Lord, we look forward to the end. When we get to stand before you and we get to just worship you and praise your name. But Lord, while we are here, help us to live as your son, Jesus Christ, just like we talked about last week. 
Lord, as we go into this Thanksgiving weekend, help us to be thankful. We're going to get around family members we don't like. We're going to get around family members that we argue with. We're going to get around family members that get on our nerves. Help us to be your example. Help us to show who you really are by working out our salvation. Pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen.